Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Celluloid Junkies. I am Luke Kane and I'm here with Damien Heath. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. <laughs> I hope you're all wearing your corsets because this month we are embarking on a school excursion to a geological marvel in the heart of the Australian outback, where we shall take tea and cake before returning sharply at 8 o'clock. Don't wander too far off from the group and I'm sure nothing will go wrong. Will it, Damien? Nothing should go wrong. <laughs> this day will be a dream. But a dream within a dream. A dream within a dream. Within a dream of a dream. <laughs> Let's get into Peter Weir's 1975 esoteric mystery picnic at Hanging Rock. What we see and what we seem are but a dream. A dream within a dream. You must learn to love someone else. Apart from me, Sarah, I won't be here much longer. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Mrs. Appenella. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle. There's the day is likely to be warm. You may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely dangerous. And you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. nineteen seventy three, Sydney, Australia. TV actress and broadcaster Patricia Lovell is looking to break into the film industry. As an anchor woman on a Sydney morning show, she meets promising film director Peter Weir. Around the same time, she also reads and is entranced by Joan Lindsay's nineteen sixty seven mystery novel, Picnic at Hanging Rock. After several years of dormancy, the Australian film industry is rising from the ashes. Thanks to initiatives from the Gorton government, a series of fresh voices are releasing movies that garner international acclaim. Films like Wake in Fright, Stone and Walkabout herald in what becomes known as the Australian New Wave. Peter Weir has only a handful of credits to his name, mostly shorts, yet he's already being touted as a major talent on the rise. Lovell pays Lindsay $100 to option her novel for three months. She contacts Weir who reads the novel and catches the budding producer's enthusiasm for the project. The pair enlist producers Hal and Jim McElroy, who've recently collaborated with Weir on his first feature, The Cars That Ate Paris. Weir is invited to Lady Lindsay's home for lunch, for a meeting he later describes as a veiled audition. Despite having been warned by her associates not to ask the 71-year-old author if her story is based in truth, he can't resist testing the waters. Joan Lindsay tenses before politely requesting that he never ask that question again. 
Lovell raises the $440,000 budget through state and federal government-funded film corporations, British Empire Films and a number of private investors. An exhaustive casting process begins, with Weir carefully selecting girls who possess the right mix of innocence and purity. The production arrives at Martindale Hall to shoot the college scenes, fittingly enough, on February 14, 1975. The shoot lasts six weeks, six days a week in South Australia and Victoria. A major casting switch is made when Weir discovers that Ingrid Mason doesn't have the right quality for the critical role of Miranda, and he replaces her with Anne Louise Lambert. Mason is convinced by Lovell to stay on the production in a smaller role. For the part of Mrs. Appleyard, Rachel Roberts is flown down on short notice after Vivian Merchant, who was originally cast, is struck down by illness on her way to Australia. When the production moves to The Rock, several of the crew report strange occurrences, including pieces of equipment that disappear and watches that stop working. Joan Lindsay visits the set of The Rock. She gravely remarks, it doesn't welcome us. The film premieres in South Australia on the 8th of August 1975. Audiences and critics applaud the film's dreamlike rhythm, inscrutable mystery and haunting atmosphere. It becomes an immediate sensation and launches director Peter Weir's ascent to Hollywood. The film renews interest in Lindsay's novel and turns Hanging Rock into a lively tourist destination. In December of 1984, Joan Lindsay goes to her grave without ever revealing the secrets of Hanging Rock. To this day, many Australians erroneously believe the novel and film recount an actual disappearance, making the story behind the story as maddening as the story itself. I like how um, how intense she was about you know whether she was going to reveal if it was based on a true story. <laughs> well, all of the papers at the time suggest that it wasn't. She just wanted to keep that myth up. It was obviously her intention from the very beginning. I have a theory that it is based on some sort of true story, but maybe it's sort of a metaphor for something that happened in her life, or I don't know. But there's definitely, from reading about her and reading Helen Goltz's book, there's something in the story that was true to her. I don't know what it is. I'm sure there was, because it sounds like she was a bit loopy at times. She had a very kind of idiosyncratic view of life and time and the world. Mm. She was a really interesting lady. It's amazing that she wrote this story when she was 70. Mm. Well, a bit younger than that. Would yeah, have been early 60s. 60s yeah. yeah. So, Damien, tell me about your first experience with Picnic and what you think overall of the film. It took me a long time to get around to watching Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, I think I only watched it properly for the first time last year, and I thought it was very good. I think I gave it four stars. Um, it's grown on me since then, and I really like it now. Or maybe I even love it after doing the research for this episode. I was the same. I didn't come to it for ages. I was a little... I reckon I was about 25 when I saw it. I think I saw it before you. You'd say, I, well, I only watched it properly last year, so yeah, you obviously did. Yeah, no, I've seen it maybe seven or eight years ago. Well, congratulations. When I watched it, it became my favourite Australian film straight away and kind of left all the competition in the dust. But I'd avoided it for many years, and I think I was sort of put off by the clips I'd seen and the jacket art. I thought, mm, nah. And that's unlike you because you're really into period films. But it didn't look like a standard period film. It looked like a bunch of girls kind of swanning around in white frocks, kind of speaking really abstractly. 
mm. and esoterically about things. And I thought it's probably going to be one of those films that's really sort of puts style over substance and is just kind of, you know, turns its nose up at plot. And I love plot. And there was also, I mean, that terrifying incident you had at a picnic that time. So let's uh, move on from there. I did not have a terrifying incident at a picnic. Yeah, I'm sure you were at a picnic one time and a bird swooped you or something. <laughs> well, picnics are pretty horrific. Just the idea of picnics are horrific in themselves. Yeah. But when I, when I finally sat down and watched it, I absolutely loved it. I was so surprised that it was a genuine story, mystery, and I was... Um, I loved the horror of it. I think it's such a horrific movie in parts. Mm. It has a really unsettling feeling, you know, from the the way that Weir shoots the rock, the humming that it makes, the unanswered questions. I mean, real horror is in the unknown. And this whole story is about not knowing I think a lot of people worked it into the horror genre when they kind of reappraised it or appraised it over subsequent years. And it's not particularly a genre that Australia is known for. So it's a really interesting case. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting even when you look at the Australian New Wave movies. It's not exactly a movie that you could say it doesn't resemble Wake and Fright. doesn't resemble really any New Wave movie. It is its own beast. And a lot of those Australian New Wave movies did have some kind of element of horror to them. There were the kind of outright horror ones like Razorback and a lot of the exploitation stuff, but even Waking Fright definitely is like they say it's like a nightmare. Oh it is, uh, but it's a totally different feeling. Yeah. How would you characterize Australian New Wave? So Australian New Wave's basically a period of filmmaking uh, and a lot of really great filmmakers who went on to work in Hollywood and, and elsewhere came out of the Australian New Wave. But it was, as you said, I think it was John Gorton, the Liberal Prime Minister, and then Gough Whitlam after that, that really injected, started injecting some money. Yeah. So I read that there was a period in the 60s where for about six or seven years, we did not make one feature film. Yeah. I don't know if it was that low. Cinema admissions in 1928 was 187 million which is a lot. Uh, that's about 30 films per person. So you're talking about films that Australians saw that weren't Australian films? No, I'm talking about the number of times that Australia, people in Australia went to the cinema. That's what I mean. Was 187 million or about 30 times per person in 1928. But the bulk of those films would not be Australian films. That's, that's right, yeah. In the 1930s, that dropped quickly thanks to the Depression and then it kind of rebounded in the 1940s and into the 50s after the end of World War II and then, of course, television came along. And so cinema admissions started dropping. And a lot of these Australian production companies that were, I guess, previously producing a minimum number of films, they were bought out by UK or US-owned companies. Oh, right. And those companies had absolutely no interest in producing Australian films. So what they would do is they would just use all of the cinemas that they owned and all of the kind of network of movie making to get their films produced outside of Australia into Australia. And that's why I think it was 1969 there was pretty much nothing. In 1969, there was 47 million admissions to cinemas, which was about four per person. And that was down from 30 per person 40 years before. So it's, it's a, a, a huge drop. That average hasn't changed much. We average about four films per person now. In a year? Each year. What? Yeah, Are you well, telling that's... me that people go to the cinema four times a year? 
on average. That's crazy. What's wrong with people? There's tons of people who don't go to the cinema at all. Yeah, but they're just deranged, aren't they? (laughs) Well, I don't disagree with you. (laughs) Um, There's an article that I found, the Sydney Morning Herald. They had a film critic named Keith Connolly at the time, and he wrote an article for the New York Times in 1981. It was kind of looking back at the Australian New Wave. And he said that production of feature films was near zero in 1969. And he said, The so-called Australian New Wave is one of volume, with feature production swelling to an annual average of 20 films during the later 1970s. After World War II, the distributors uh, lost complete interest in financing and screening Australian films, and this was the principal cause of a 20-year hiatus when feature production dwindled to virtually nothing. And he also pointed out, I'm not sure if it was him or if I found this out somewhere else, that in the first 15 years of the new wave, which generally is kind of talked about as going about 20 years long, so from 1970 to 1985, almost 400 Australian films were made, so in that 15 years, and that was more than had been made in the entire history of Australian cinema up to that point. And Australian new wave was the first time that Australian movies carried over to the international market. It really was. Um, and it was also the first time that we started looking at things in a, I guess, a less kind of jocular manner. And we looked at things a little bit more seriously. Uh, certainly the first time that Indigenous Australians were characterised with meaning and depth. And that was really important. Directors like Peter Weir and the other directors at that time who sort of came out from that school that had been funded by the government, they were very clever in that they understood the fascination Australia held for non-Australians and other nations, particularly Western nations, and they were able to tap into that. A lot of non-Australian filmgoers, they think of Australia as sort of the arse end of the world. And they think that, you know, we're surrounded by a rugged bush and very cruel environment and deadly creatures. And none of that's untrue. No, none of it is untrue. And also, I think because we began as a penal colony, there are certain trickle-down assumptions that are made about Australian attitudes and behaviours. It's almost like there's more of a a fuck-off or an unruliness to Australian people that you wouldn't necessarily find in other developed first world nations you know you think of the british archetype or the american archetype as being far more uptight than australians are and so we get all of that in this australian new wave movement there's a very um, casual loose feeling towards sex it's a very unsexy sex and it's also um, a lot of horror a lot of grimness a lot of what isn't said i mean wake and fright is really about uh, how casually one man slips into living like a barbarian. You know, he goes from being a, an English teacher with collared shirt and, you know, to someone who's having drunk sex with a man because they're basically just horny cavemen, you know, and like shooting kangaroos and watching them bleed to death. We also have something completely different than pretty much any other country on earth. I'm not sure if Russia has this as well, but we have such a huge concentration of people in our major cities along the coastlines and next to no one living anywhere else. And we have a country that's as big or bigger than the United States, which has 350 going on 400 million people. And we have 25 million people in that same space. It'd be like, I don't know, over 99% of Australia is uninhabited because it's pretty much uninhabitable. 
even today crossing through the outback has so many dangers so many so many people go missing out there so many crazy things happen out there and it's easy to see like in waking fright how you could be stuck in that kind of situation and that kind of environment the films that carried over really weren't interested in our urban storytelling mm. because it too closely resembled a drama that could be set anywhere. That's what right. they wanted were films like Wolf Creek, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Wake in Fright, films that were set in the rugged outback in this alien landscape. Well, have you, you never watched uh, Walkabout? No, I haven't. Rogue. Well, Walkabout starts with this British family, a, a father and his son and daughter, who the, the daughter is a teenager, the son is uh, a little bit younger than that. They're living this kind of idyllic life and there's these scenes of the high-rise building that they live in in Sydney, uh, the swimming pool that the people are all lounging in and everything. Anyway, he takes his kids and he drives out to the outback and he attempts to kill them and they escape and that's how the story starts. It's just kind of that there, that opening kind of sequence of walkabout signifies so much of what the Australian New Wave is kind of about, about that kind of dichotomy between the city and the country that would be so pronounced and, you know, to be honest, still is. Now, my parents are out there kind of travelling around the country right now. They kind of really enjoy all of that stuff. It's a bit of a foreign world to me, even though I grew up in the country. I never, I don't know anything about the Australian bush or country life. Mm. I hope your parents don't run into Mick Taylor. Well, yeah, so do I. <laughs> so, I mean, Australian New Wave ultimately evolved or maybe perhaps devolved into Ozploitation Cinema, which was essentially the crystallisation of, of a lot of these formative ideas that had been set up in the kind of Australian New Wave idea of, you know, the landscape being alien and threatening. If you look at the antagonists of the films, like the pig in Razorback or Mick Taylor in Wolf Creek, they're almost indivisible from the landscape itself. You know, they're, they're of the earth. They're byproducts of the earth. Well, it feels like even with Mick Taylor and Wolf Creek, those people have intruded into this lair of his that's been around for hundreds of years. He doesn't only own the bush, he kind of is the bush. Yeah. And the boar is the same. So it's this idea of, you know, that there are these threatening things that will come out and gobble you up in this eerie, vast land that's too wild to govern and sort of too alien to fully comprehend. Somewhere in the Australian outback, he's waiting. Razorback. I mean, it was bizarre that they went with those Ozploitation movies, but I guess they were cheap to produce and they raked in a lot of money. Ozploitation really started around the early 80s. Yeah, maybe the turn of the decade there. And that ties in with when the slasher movie was becoming really big in the United States as well. Yeah, although I did love Razorback and Wolf Creek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wolf Creek's kind of, I guess, in keeping with exploitation films. Oh, I would say it is. Paul Burns, who is the current or, or at least recent Sydney Morning Herald film writer, and he wrote in 2015 that many people saw in Picnic an Australian film manifesto we look and sound different and we see things differently to you in the old world. It makes no sense as narrative and never tries to. It has no love for the concrete. It attempted to establish a poetics of our landscape that was unlike anything before, mystical, impenetrable, non-human. It is all about seeing and feeling rather than knowing. That was its breakthrough. Picnic put artistic Australian film on the map in places that matter, mattered like Cannes and New York and London. Yeah, and it's lucky that we have some really great actors that have kind of made it big 
internationally. So Kate Blanchett will come back and do Little Fish. Nicole Kidman will come back and do Stranger Land. It's great that we have a lot of um, actors out there that are really loyal to Australia and love Australia. Was Nicole Kidman in Australia? Yeah, she was. So Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe were in that? Uh, Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Nicole Uh, Kidman's come back a few times. Yeah. Kate Blanchett, not as much, but she did a lot of work on the Sydney stage. She did. We went and saw her. Mm. Gross und klein. You took a photo and they told you off. (laughs) (laughs) Security came straight up to me, didn't they? Uh, I need to see you delete that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Why couldn't you just enjoy the play, Jamie? Why do you have to get out your phone and make a big hoo-ha? Oh, you know, I just want to get on all the socials. Let's talk a little bit about the fact that Picnic at Hanging Rock is an unresolved mystery. When we begin to read or watch a mystery, any mystery, there is an unwritten contract that exists between the author of the work and its consumer. If a work of fiction establishes a place and time and then poses a question, we expect an answer by the end of the story. By establishing a mystery and providing no resolution, Joan Lindsay essentially breaks this contract with the consumer. And mainstream audiences who watch films purely for entertainment or the plot, are going to feel shortchanged. And uh, they'll accuse the author of being lazy. How many times have we heard that? Where, you know, there'll be this sort of abstract movie and it might end on a really kind of ambiguous note. People are like, oh, they they couldn't finish the story. They're lazy. Or that they're being deliberately vague. That sounded like your dad. Yeah, (laughs) it was. (laughs) Or that they're being deliberately vague to distinguish themselves as artists. You know, I'm not going to play by the generic rules of this convention because I am too good for that. Yeah, like they're being too smart. Yeah. Yeah. In a book, you're going to accept it better than a film. Only because a book attracts a certain kind of person. Not many people read books. And also books have a lot of scope. They can go in a lot of different directions. And so you might finish Picnic at Hanging Rock the book and be like, okay, that's fine. That's interesting. And you'll enjoy putting the pieces together yourself. But people who sit down for a two-hour movie, they are going to want it to end. Picnic at Hanging Rock ends, but it doesn't really end in a way that is conventionally satisfying. And it also ends in a way that leaves it open. And if you leave something open, it kind of feels unfinished. Weir negates this by making his movie about something other than the disappearance. In the final analysis, Picnic and Hanging Rock is only superficially about a disappearance. I think it's far more interested in the mythology of the land, the war of nature versus civilization, ambiguous loss, which we're going to talk about a little later, and the course of female sexuality. Not the course of female sexuality. And of course, <laughs> yeah, female sexuality. Yeah, I was wondering where we were going to go with that. <laughs> what, what the hell they is start that? at age six. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Do you watch Picnic and feel frustrated? No, not at all. This is where I get to bring up one of my favourite movies. Okay. That doesn't have a clear can ending. I, can I guess oh, what yeah. it is? <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Limbo? Limbo. Oh, good yeah. Lord, I still haven't seen it. Didn't, you, didn't we watch it? I thought we watched it. Nah. Okay, so John Sayles, 1999 thriller Limbo, which starred David Strathairn and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. 
And it's about this man and his new partner and her daughter who become secluded on an island and they're being hunted by drug smugglers and they need to try and survive. And that sounds really cheesy so far, but it's not. I'm Uh, just wondering if you should really say the ending because you're going to spoil a movie that we've just brought up two seconds ago. Okay, yeah. In the end... And I've written here, and stop listening if you don't want spoilers. Okay. Although it has been 20 years since its release, so I think you've all had enough time. Well, you don't need to get all head up. A helicopter flies toward the island that they're stuck on. Is it there to save them? Have they been found by the drug smugglers? Who knows? Because the credits roll. We're left in limbo. (laughs) (laughs) So one reviewer hated this ending so much that he said he was cheated by a complete and total cop-out finale. Picnic kind of leaves us with that feeling that Limbo would leave us with 25 years later. We are so invested in the story up until that point that we really want answers, but we're not really given any. And a lot of people who don't gel with with watching two hours of cinema will feel cheated, as though they need everything kind of sewn up in a neat little package. But if the film is worth your time, then you'll kind of accept these ambiguities and... In fact, I think for me, they elevate the material. The film is obviously about more than the mystery. What would you say ultimately it's about? Because it's a film that could really be seen or perceived in a multitude of different ways. I would say it's about the course of young girls' sexuality. No, really, what do you think it's about? Could you stop creaking in your chair? Where do my my chair creaks? That is not going to be fun for our listeners. Have you got any WD-40? <laughs> we should swap seats because I'm very still when I record. Do you want to swap seats? No, I just want you to stop creaking. Okay. What do I think the film is about? Well, the film is obviously about this disappearance, but that is the way of telling this story about a lack of understanding about nature and our culture by white people. I'm not sure how much of a, if any, relationship Joan Lindsay had with Aborigines. I don't know of any. No. From having I haven't read her her autobiography, but I don't know of any. That's what I take from the movie, mostly. So you think it's about the displacement of the indigenous people? No, I don't think it's necessarily about the displacement of indigenous people. I think it's about the reverse effect of that and the way that British settlers come in and conquer this land and they take over and they knock stuff down and build big apartment buildings and all of this kind of stuff. They civilise this uncivilised society and this uncivilised land and they're unable to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the first half and second half of the film are about different things. I'm going to save what I think the first half is about. But I I certainly think the second half is about ambiguous loss. And you and I learned about ambiguous loss when we were doing our research and uh, about missing people a few years ago. You know that that's a loss that occurs without closure or understanding. And so it essentially freezes the grieving process because uh, grieving for the person who's lost or missing would feel like you're betraying them or giving up on them. And so you don't do that. Ambiguous loss is not limited to to missing people. It can be felt with a breakup or with kids leaving the house. It's sort of a loss where the person isn't definitely gone or or, or haven't, haven't definitely died. It was a term coined by Dr. Pauline Boss, and she did a lot of research and work into it and released several books about it. 
The effects of ambiguous loss include, but aren't limited to PTSD, addiction, depression, exhaustion, anger towards or mistrust of agencies that are designed to help, and worst cases, violence and suicide. So the girls at Apple Yard appear to be suffering from PTSD when they attack Irma. It's sort of a hysterical reaction to their own confusion about not knowing and needing to know. Uh, None of the girls have grieved yet. They're all sitting there in this oppressive, silent school, not able to talk about it and not knowing what happened to these beloved senior girls. Sarah Wayborn's depression leads to suicide, and that's at least partly related to losing Miranda, whom she loved. Mrs. Appleyard, at the very end, we, there's an indication that she's going to become an alcoholic. Michael Fitzpatrick's frustration escalates to the point where he returns to the rock and is found dehydrated and immobile by Albert, who saves him. So there is, with missing people, a lot of the their loved ones, they desperately campaign for answers and they go to the ends of the earth that drive themselves almost to near psychosis, looking for answers because it's just maddening not knowing. And we see that that coming out with Michael. I think the second half of the film is really about the snowball effect of their absence and how not knowing begins to destroy everybody in different ways. And certainly even goes as far as destroying the establishment. Well, yeah, because, I mean, all the girls don't return. There's this stigma on the school afterwards. Newspapers all over the world have headlined our morbid affair, Miss Lumley. I mean, you realise that, I suppose. The three who have been withdrawn... Plus the three still missing on the rock. Two, Mrs. Appleyard, only two now. I'm quite sure Irma will be coming back. That makes six, Miss Lumley. Will not be with us next term. I I think it's really interesting that audiences en masse let themselves think this is based on a true story. I mean, I know the first time I saw Shawshank, I thought it feels like a true story. My mum always told me that Picnic Hanging Rock was based on a true story. Right. And I believed it until I suppose I really kind of fell in love with the movie a few years ago and read into it. There was a final chapter to Picnic at Hanging Rock, which was published after Joan Lindsay's death. Yes, she apparently left uh, instructions to publish it three years after she died. Uh, It was published sort of as a standalone little novella called The Secret of Hanging Rock. Have you read about it? I have read about it, yes. Did it clarify anything for you? (laughs) Oh, well, obviously it brings into the forefront the supernatural. Yes. This idea of the supernatural, but also it's got a strange crab creature. It describes the girls discovering a hole, not in the rocks, but a hole in space, about the size of a rounded summer moon coming and going, and the girls disappear into this hole before a series of rocks come crashing down, sealing them inside. The idea of them entering a another dimension or a hole in space lends credence to this idea which Philip Adams, who was a journalist and friend of Joan Lindsay's, um, a theory that he had, which he calls the time warp theory. Basically, he believes that the girls climbed a rock, they moved into another dimension where time was non-linear, and they've been transported into either the future or the past or somewhere in between that. And there is quite a bit of evidence in the book and the film to support this theory. You know the part in the film where Marion looks down from the rock and she sees a group of people sitting? That's right, yeah. yeah. And she gives this speech. A surprising number of human beings are without purpose. Though it is probable they are performing some function unknown to themselves. The theory would be that the people she sees are actually the search party who are out looking for them and taking a break. 
Okay. And there's another part in the book where Irma says that she can hear the beating of drums. And we know that the next day, when the search party are looking, they're beating those drums. So it's almost this idea of they're caught in this weird place where time has no limitation. And essentially, the future and the past are all kind of merging. It would also explain why the girls' bodies are never found, despite exhaustive searches. The other thing that you really can't ignore about Picnic is that it is obsessed with clocks and durations. Does that also kind of signify why Michael can't get past that certain point in the rock? Is that the entrance to this black hole? Possibly. I mean, it's where Irma is found. Hmm. And it's curious that she's found eight days later, something like that, a week later. Why wasn't she found during these initial searches? From what I read in the movie... Nobody got up that high. Nobody could. Michael got stopped. Yeah. But then how did he get that? Cloth from her. Yeah. So uh, Mrs. Appleyard's office is always silent, but for the ticking of a wall clock, which inexplicably stops in the final frames of the last scene. That's the last thing Peter Weir leaves, leaves us with is this idea of the clock stopping. You can almost find a reference to time in every scene. It's abnormally obsessed with time. I won't be here much longer on which you will be required to write a brief essay on Monday morning. I shall expect you back, Miss McCraw and Mademoiselle, at about eight. Thousands of years old. A million years old, Mr. Hussey, or thereabouts. Devil of a long time, anyway. Only a million years ago. Must be all of 350 million years old. Can't be more in midday. I thought it was a little early for lunch myself. They always allow an hour longer than it takes to get it. I expect you to be word perfect when I send Miss Lumley in in half an hour. Light up my watch hasn't stopped. Get on 12 o'clock. You wouldn't have the time, I suppose, miss. You pretty little diamond watch. Don't wear it anymore. Can't stand it ticking above my heart. Stopped at 12. Well, after two, I'd say. I promised Mrs. Appleyard I'd have you a lot back at the college by eight. I should like to make a few measurements at the base of the rock if we have time. We shall only be gone a little while. Everything. Exactly the right time. What time is it? Mademoiselle, why are you so late? How soon after the girls did Miss McCraw leave? But they're gone by the time I come out of the trees. We'll have to be gone soon. This tragedy is little more than a week old. Uh, Don't let me detain you, Miss Lamley. You have a class in a few minutes, I believe. It's also worth noting that mathematical measurements of time is a man-made construct. You know, civility is punctuality and orderliness. Time and and measuring time, it belongs at Appleyard College, along with the imported grass and the imported European customs that are so antithetical to the rhythms of the wild. When the girls leave the school and give themselves over to the rock, it's almost as if they're voluntarily surrendering all that is unnaturally ordered about their world, and they reach for something far more primitive. Peter Weir exacerbates this idea of time being nonlinear with these slow motion shots and superimposed imagery as if, you know, things are happening at the same time. You mean the double exposures? Yeah. Yeah. And it also brings the girls and particularly Miranda to nature because so many of those double exposures are of her against nature. At one point, Miranda tells Mademoiselle that she no longer wears her gold watch because she couldn't stand it ticking over her heart. And the rock keeps Miranda. Irma says that if she had that watch, she'd wear it all the time, even in the bath. And the rock spits Irma back out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like there's this, almost this idea of Miranda being... And Miranda is the one that kind of pushes forward. She's the one that wants to explore. She seems to be moving up that rock 
as if she understands that she needs to do it. It's like a compulsion, like it's her fate. I don't know, there's this strange connection between Miranda and The Rock. I have now, after having done all my research, a brand new theory about what this means, and I'm going to share that with you at some point in this episode. Okay. But we're not there yet, Tammy. You haven't earned it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a break and play our interview with Karen Robson, who played Irma, the one who came back. Waiting a million years. Just for us. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I know that you you don't give a lot of interviews about the film, so I really appreciate it. No, not at all. It's getting to be quite a long time ago now, Lou. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but my goodness, the power of the film is as um, immediate uh, as ever. It's true. It lasts. So you guys are in South Australia, right? That's right, yeah. And what is your podcast about film only or well we pick a film that we love um from basically can be yes. any film and we just sort of look at it from a, an analytical and production perspective and discuss it and have guests on and i guess just try to get to the marrow of the movie right okay very um, good they're about 90 minute episodes so, and we do one a month well it's also you know obviously the film was shot partly in south australia so it's very specifically South Australian in that way. Yeah, it is. It's always been my my favourite Australian movie. Oh, great. What was it like growing up in Sydney and was acting something that uh, you were always drawn to? No, I was not always drawn to acting particularly. I loved films first and old-fashioned, you know, classic Hollywood films. That's something I was obsessed with when I was young. I used to watch that old TV show, Bill Collins was the host of, you know, classic movies. And I loved films. Then I got into theatre. I started to be super interested in theatre when I was like 14, 15, 16. But mostly going to it, you know, and just being in school plays and things. And I went to all sorts of, you know, I went to the original uh, Nimrod Theatre productions and uh, whoever was in town, the Royal Shakespeare Company, stuff like that. So I, I did. I was always attracted to the thespian arts in that way, uh, but I never thought of acting in film until I just had this opportunity to do a screen test for the, or actually originally go to an audition for this film. And it was right after I left high school and before I went to university. So I never, you know, really thought of doing it in any kind of serious or professional way until I kind of fell into this movie. At what point through the auditioning process did you find out that you'd actually won Irma, you know, one of the principal roles in the film? I was suggested specifically for that role by Martin Sharp, who was a visual consultant or became a visual consultant on the film. He was represented by Hilary Lindstedt, who was, I guess, his agent in in his commercial endeavors. I mean, he was an artist, but he also did graphic art and stuff like that. And she was doing the casting for the film. So he knew me and he specifically thought I would be right for that role. So I actually auditioned for that role. Then uh, they had me do a screen test, so that was when I knew that I might even have a chance. (laughs) And then I got the role. So it was really surreal for me. (laughs) I bet. 
Had you read the novel before mm. you kind of wore into the film or did you did you ever read it? Yes. No, I did read that. I had not read the novel when the possibility came up, but I read the novel before I went to the audition. And I was just fascinated. It was just such a fabulous, you know, mysterious story and there's a lot uh, a lot of Irma in the novel and a lot in the film but the novel I guess must have helped inform the character enormously for you yes of course because uh it really you know it gives more more of the backstory of who she was and what kind of person she was I suppose and um I didn't take it personally that they thought of me for the role because <laughs> she was a rather sort of spoiled girl in some ways. She was, but she was not. I'm sure she's always been. <laughs> she's always been my favourite. I think Miranda is almost too much of a too pure, too much of a goody two shoes, and I like that Irma's got a bit of sass to her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so she she was the wise, and and then she had that special relationship with the French mistress. Mamzelle. Yes. Um, which you two have a beautiful scene in the film together <clears throat> once you come back from The Rock. I adored Helen Morse. And, uh, I mean, I still adore her, just not in touch with her anymore. But I was, um, she's just such a wonderful actress. It was so great in the film. Did you have a chance to meet Joan Lindsay on set? I didn't meet her on set. I met her very briefly in Melbourne when we um, first went there. I think Anne Lambert met her on set, but I don't recall meeting her on set. But I knew who she was, of course, because she was part of that Lindsay family of artists. She was married to Sir Daryl Lindsay. So she came from a very interesting background, and that I knew. How would you describe Peter Weir's approach as a director? And I'm wondering what the dynamic was like between you and Anne-Louise Lambert, Jane Ballas, and Christine Schuler. Looking back, Peter was very young. Of course, to us, she seemed quite old <laughs> because, you know, I was 17 or so. But he was very young and very empathetic, I think. So I think he had, and charismatic as well, I would say. So he had the ability to connect with people, you know, and inspire them, I think. He was great at working. I mean, there was such a variety of people in the cast from very super experienced actors to people like me who was really an amateur, you know, not a trained actress and not someone who'd done a lot of work. And so he was very good at putting people into the role and creating, especially between the girls, because those scenes, you know, on the rock and then the scenes in the gym and those things required the girls to connect. And I think that um, he was very good at creating that. And of course, like all films, it was shot out of sequence, you know, so... So the scenes in The Rock were done before the scenes when they're leaving the school and uh, that take place at the school, which are all done in South Australia. So he was great at that. As far as the, the dynamic between the girls, I mean, Anne was a little older. You know, she was probably 19. <laughs> but she was a professional actress and had been in the business for a while. Jane Vallis was also a professional actress, and I suppose you know that she died tragically very young of mm. breast cancer, which is very sad. So, you know, Anne was, her role was so ethereal and off, to the, off with the pixies a bit, as it were. There was a little more distance between her and the other girls, but not in a bad way, just more that she was more sophisticated and, um, you know, had been in the business for a while. 
Peter was good at creating. I mean, for example, in the gymnasium scene, when I come back to see everyone, he did a lot of improvisational kind of games before those scenes, like nursery rhyme games and stuff that created that weird feeling between the girls. I don't know if that answers your question at all. <laughs> it does. It's, it's so interesting. And I, I had to ask you about that gym scene because she starts out very childlike and um, very innocent. But then mm. when she returns in that red coat, there's this unspoken transition that she's made from girl to woman. And yes. I was just wondering yes. how you managed to convey that so wordlessly yet so precisely, because it's also in your manner and your bearing. It really is extraordinary to watch. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I think a lot, you know, the costume helped, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I think the costumes are very important in the film in that way. And that red cape and that decision to create that kind of imperious cape and look were were very important. But the whole idea of, of who she was and who she became and what happened on the rock and what happened, you know, when she was discovered and that break with Michael that just didn't work out for her. I think she just made a complete decision, you know, to leave childhood behind and, and that she was headed back to Europe and with her family and, um, and a, a different life. But it was, that scene was quite something to shoot. It was quite terrifying, actually. My favorite part of it is when we cut to uh, Margaret Nelson, Sarah, strapped to that posture improver. Horrifying. You know, that was that kind of sadistic side of what was, you know, Victorian and what was going on in that school, I think. You mentioned Martin Sharp earlier, and by all accounts, mm. he was yeah. quite obsessed with this story and this film. He was. I'm sorry, he's passed away. A very obsessive person. He later became obsessed with uh, Luna Park and the fire and that occurred there. And so he was, you know, he was inclined to be obsessive, you know, in a creative and artistic fashion. But, you know, he certainly brought a layer of depth to Peter's thinking about the film from a visual point of view that was, I think, helpful. Uh, What do you remember? He created, for example, the album, Valentine's Day album that you see Sarah looking at. You know, he created some of those things using... Victorian decals and greeting cards. It was a whole weird sticker culture before stickers, you know, where they had those beautiful, I don't know if decals really the right word, but, you know, there were sort of like multicolored images and uh, people put them in scrapbooks and stuff. And he created these sort of real, I don't know what happened to that album, work of art, you know, in Mm. almost a surreal way. And so those things, I think, just, created, you know, part of the visual poetry of the film. What do you remember about Rachel Roberts? That's an interesting question. I remember going to the Siebel townhouse in Sydney with Peter and Martin Sharp to meet Rachel Roberts when she arrived. Why, I do not know. (laughs) I, I remember going to meet her and being, and she was quite imperious and a little bit terrifying. And so I didn't have that much interaction with her. She came on late in the picture. The role was supposed to be played by Vivian Merchant, uh, Harold Pinter's ex-wife. 
It's just one of those, I, I believe she committed suicide. And then Rachel Roberts was hired, who was a great choice too, I think. And then Rachel and, Roberts um, ended up committing suicide. Yes, it's one of those things that people who are great fans of the film add up all those things and go. And, of course, she, you know, it is implied she does the same in the film. It's a bit spooky, I agree. I agree. I can't, cannot explain it. I do remember she had a boyfriend called Valentine, too, at the time, which everyone thought was kind of weird. <laughs> so, yes, we're, we're into those conspiracy theories or whatever they are, but still... She was great. I mean, she was just amazing. Yeah, I imagine, though, you know, being, because you were, what, 17 when this film was shot? Yes, 17. So meeting... Yep, I was, I had just finished high school. Wow. It was shot in February, and I guess I had just finished high school in December. So I, you know, it was unbelievably exciting, and it, I, it changed my life, you know, but being in this film and what happened to the film and just my perception on what was possible from life I think changed from being in it and it, it is funny when people ask me about it and looking back because I do remember it very clearly clearly in many ways but you know now I'm an entertainment lawyer and I've been in the film business for years and years and years and from a business side you know sometimes I find some piece of information like the film was shown at the Cannes Film Festival whatever it was I go really wasn't I didn't realize it. you know because I wouldn't have known what that was Yes. Do you remember what what your impressions were of The Rock? The Rock is a mysterious place. It appears to have some kind of force field. How much of it was already inculcated in from the script and the idea and whatever and my own uh, is hard to say, but it really was. It, it had a power. It is sort of just sticks up out of the landscape and it, it had those different caverns and what is reflected in... The film is how you feel it, I think, when you're there. I haven't been back, actually. I must do that sometime. But I think there are some scenes where you see the rock, you almost see, like, faces, and I do feel that that's what it was like walking around there. Part of it was probably my imagination, but I do remember it as being a very, you know, it was more like it had a force field when you were there. What was it like after the film came out? What What do you remember about sort of the buzz? Because, I mean, it, it was pretty successful right off the bat, wasn't it? It's certainly in Australia and in other countries. I remember going to the premiere, and that was incredibly exciting. And I remember doing press for it. I remember having a photo session, I think, with Helen Morse or something, for like the cover of some magazine, like New Idea or Women's Weekly or something or other. And so there was stuff like that that was all completely, you know, fine to me and very exciting. It also did quite well overseas. And that was, I think, one of the reasons it was such an important Australian film. My mother uh, at the time was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it did show in her local cinema there. And she was astonished to go and see it there. But that was probably, you know, films used used to take a while for films to appear in other countries. So it was probably nine months to a year after it opened in Australia. When I was 19, I traveled to London, I went to Italy, and it was very popular there. A producer I know asked me whether I would be prepared to do a commercial in Italy, something ridiculous like floor polish, because I was so well known. (laughs) 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 
I didn't do it in the end, but it, it sort of amazed me. So it did travel in places and throughout my life, you know, I've met people from different countries who tell me that they saw it when it came out. You know, I'm not sure it was in every country, but um, and that it, it had a, left a powerful impression on them. I still get letters from people, maybe since the internet, even more so, but letters from people all over the world telling me, you know, that this is their favorite film, and which is pretty extraordinary for, you know, what was a pretty, like a $300,000 film made in Australia before Australian films were very popular. So, you know, it has a power that makes it some people's favorite film. You know, that's pretty amazing. I mean, it probably did come before Australia had that resurgence, but it is such a pivotal part of that kind of new Australian cinema of the 70s. I mean, it, it holds such a place in our film history. Yes, because I remember the films that came after it because there was, to me, it was partly like, oh, well, am I going to be an actor or am I going to go to university? What am I going to do? And there was only one other project that I was obsessed with, which was My Brilliant Career, which the the Judy Davis, Gillian Armstrong film, which came fairly shortly after it. And um, I did audition for that and I did not get the role and nor should I have gotten the role because Judy Davis was a much better actor and much better for the role. And after that, I sort of lost interest a bit. So I do remember the films that came after it, but many of them, they just didn't have the same overseas, for some reason, Picnics and Hanging Rock has just had this special play. It's a little bit more... You know, when I saw it again, and I have seen it again a couple of times, it was re-released in America. I actually presented it at some forum in New York, you know, when I was living in New York, and that's probably 20 years ago. I was shocked by how intense the film was. I did not remember that kind of hothouse intensity of the film. And so I think it was, it was unusual. There were a lot of other great Australian films around that time, but it had a kind of quality that was a little unusual. I mean, there were other films like The Getting of Wisdom, which was also set in a girls' boarding school. But, you know, they were more classic, like, BBC period stories. This story was definitely a little weird, (laughs) in a good way. I think Australian cinema has a great tendency to be meditative is the word that I like to use and to take time to Uh explore themes. And I think it's one of the great things about our cinema is that we have been able to do that. Uh, You know, Picnic at Hanging Rock was obviously one example of that, Um, but there's, there's been plenty of other examples since then and I don't think there's too many too many cultures that allow that and I, I I think it's really great that Australian cinema does allow that kind of filmmaking. Yeah so I think one of the things that was so interesting about the film was that it was about the relationship with these transplanted people from England onto the landscape like what were they doing there preserving these anglo you know traditions you know while it was not a political film in that sense you know that was a definitely important undercurrent in the story and that somehow that these girls when they got to the rock that they connected with something a little more elemental that the landscapes, the society, that it just wasn't, there's something transplanted and not in sync with the world. And so that was very, I think, interesting. And there's been so many amazing films since. And, you know, I saw 
um, the new film at Sundance this year by the director Jennifer Kent. The Nightingale. Yes. And I don't know what you think of that film, but I found it an astonishing film. Stunning. <laughs> yeah. Stunning. Um, we, we saw it as part of the Adelaide Film Festival last year and um, she was in attendance and she did a, did a presentation uh, on it and, and we were uh-huh. we were blown away. After we got through that first half hour, which was particularly difficult to watch, it was... Just, yes, just stunning. Yes. We walked out completely jaws on the floor. Yeah, well, I, I was fortunate to see it with my daughter, who's 25, and she is a cinematographer, and she's just finished AFI, and she's deeply in, into films and, you know, deeply feminist. And she absolutely thought it was, you know, she doesn't know much, as much as she should or wants to, about the history of Australia, but she just found it incredible and I realise that it's going to be hard for people to watch because that beginning but when you talk about meditative cinema that's pretty meditative <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. what happened I mean we I wrote an article for our website saying that it was kind of the film that Australia needs to Australians I think need to see it's extraordinary yeah, it really is that's the Australian film I've seen re- recently I just thought it was extraordinary I'm thrilled that it got made. I can't imagine it was easy to get a film like that made, but luckily the success of a prior film probably helped. I'm not sure I see a direct through line, but something there. Yeah, well certainly both both stories (laughs) concern themselves with horrific elements. You've been so generous with your time. Do you mind if I ask you just a couple more questions before we finish? No, no, that's fine. That's fine. I'm sitting in a car in Hollywood. What more appropriate place? <laughs> Just to go back to my brilliant career, I think that you would have yes. probably been great in the role, although I think the only problem was you were too beautiful for that role. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, she she couldn't be beautiful, you know. She needed to sort of not have that advantage no, in order to and, – no. and you really were such a stunner. Did the experience <laughs> of not getting that role, was that sort of – very disillusioning for you and is that why you sort of went nah I don't need that sort of life of constant rejection and and or or not knowing you know when it will happen that you kind of made this switch to film finance or or what triggered that transition it was so lucky to be in that film and it was such a success and it was such a great experience and role then I got an agent I had a great agent she put me up for other things of course That was a project that I loved. I remember spending a lot of time in the Mitchell Library looking at the original Miles Franklin books that are in there, you know, her manuscripts and so on are all there. She was an incredible person. And so I was, you know, very interested in it. But I didn't, it was a, it was disappointing. I didn't feel that it was a wrong decision. It was just disappointing. And then when my agent had me auditioning for the young doctors, I thought, look, is this a career I really want? And do I really feel that I have the uh, ambition and perseverance for it? And I thought about it. I thought, should I audition for NIDA? Should I go to NIDA? And, you know, I was just very academically inclined. And I just decided that I did, at that time, I didn't know I wanted to be a lawyer, although I was in arts law. So I was on that path. But I just thought, you know, I think this is not the right. I don't take rejection well. And um, you have to be able to and you have to be able to not take it personally. And I've had a wonderful experience and I'm just going to leave it at that. But, you know, I ended up married to a filmmaker. I don't appear in his films, but I help produce them. And my daughter 
is cinematographer and photographer. So I feel like, you know, I made the right decision in the end. And I'm still very involved in the business. And I'm also the pro bono counsel for Australians in film here in LA. So I still help Australians, you know, get their foot in the door in film and TV and meet lots of people who are coming up. So I feel like I made the right decision. I'm going to ask you a very dreary question now. I'm wondering if you have any personal theories about what happened on The Rock. Uh, (laughs) Well, I used to, and then my mother sent me that chapter that Joan Lindsay published. Mm. Are you aware of that whole story with the the missing chapter that was published? Yes. uh, Which explained what happened. And so that was a little disappointing for me in a way, I mean, I must say that my theories were similar, in a similar vein. It was definitely uh, in the metaphysical realm, but it was more like, you know, the crack in time concept. I I found her chapter was a little more sci-fi. And in fact, Joan Lindsay's autobiography was called, I believe, Time Without Clocks or something of that. So there there were a lot of hints in the film about time. Mm. And I feel that, you know, I do think that that explanation was where I went with it. I didn't have a series like the murder series and all of those ones, although they're there too and kind of fascinating. You know, the John Jarrett character and the relationship with Michael and the fact that that character was the brother of Sarah. It's such a great script and story, you know. I don't know whether everything's a red herring. (laughs) (laughs) Or there really is an answer. When you see the film today, I'm sure you don't watch it very frequently, but when you do catch it. Not moments, regularly. No. <laughs> um, when you do catch <laughs> it, though, or when you see it, what, what does it mean to you today? The last time I saw it, I think it was the 40th anniversary of it, and the Australian Consul in LA had a screening at her residence here outside and um, they interviewed me on stage beforehand and then I watched the film and what was lovely about watching it in that very pleasant circumstance was it was you know when you see the film it just brought back a lot of memories of that day what I was doing I wasn't really watching the film (laughs) (laughs) more like oh yes I remember and then we went there and then we did that and that was amazing and you know it was more like that I mean, the the first time I saw it after many years, when I saw it at Film Forum, I really saw it as a film and it shocked me that it was so different from how I remembered it when I first saw it. This time I was more familiar, I'd seen it again, and I think maybe my daughter had watched it. And so it was more like watching old friends and seeing people and thinking about them and remembering them and so on. So it was very enjoyable, I must say. Karen, um, thank you so much for this. This is wonderful. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Actually, I will add one thing that's been interesting to me. The film is incredibly popular amongst young creative women. And my daughter, who's now 25, she says it's like people are constantly shocked when I tell her, uh, I tell them, but my mother was Irma. <laughs> and I got, because they all love it. And it's uh, it's very, very popular with not just American, Australian, European, whatever, English in particular. 
And there have been many girls' boarding school type films recently in England and in France and whatever. So, you know, it's given me some cachet with my daughter. But no, it's also given so many people um, something so beautiful. So, and your, your contribution is just wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. When are we going home? So you'll probably hate that I'm going to bring this up, but Wikipedia describes this genre called pastoral, which it defines as that of shepherds herding livestock around open areas of land according to seasons and the changing availability of water and pasture. It's not a genre, that's a (laughs) job. Well, it notes that this genre is common in poetry and plays and music and Hellenistic and Roman paintings. So as you can see, that's a pretty specific definition of a genre. But... There's an idea that pastoral is also represented in film. Andrew J. Ford wrote a thesis about this for the University of Richmond in Virginia in 1985, and he described it as that period in history where man has conquered the wilderness in some major way but has not yet become involved in the building of cities and is therefore not subject to what the sheriff in stagecoach sarcastically calls the blessings of civilization. And some examples he gives a stagecoach, uh, Howard Hawks' Red River, and even Barry Levinson's The Natural. A 2012 article by Victoria Bladen for Monash University's Colloquy publication looks at Picnic and its pastoral influences and says that the film displays several characteristics, which include the writers give intricate details of the rock formation, the natural life that surrounds it, and insects, animals, trees, shrubs, grasses, details of the terrain that the girls pass through. Various fauna interact with the girls during the climb. Russell Boyd's cinematography lingers on the natural features, finding analogues for Joan Lindsay's observations. The camera is constantly composing the figure in the landscape. The eye of the camera contemplates the Australian landscape, its age, mystery, hostility, unaccommodating quality and alien strangeness. There is this discussion which you referenced before of the ancient age and dimensions of the rock. The characters' responses to nature are a curious mix of rationalism and myth. The rock is personified in the film. Ermus actually says the rock has been waiting millions of years just for us. And the descriptions of the rock establish its immensity, its magnitude, its gravity and size and age, which correspondingly reduce the weight and significance of the human figures about to encounter it. Anyway, I'm not trying to argue, even though it sounds like I am, that Picnic belongs in the pastoral genre, but I think the use of the landscape as a mythical entity is one of the tenets of this genre, and it's really very present in Picnic at Hanging Rock. The seemingly kind of harsh imperialist rules and codes of conduct at Appleyard College are something that these young women have grown to know as the norm. That's their life. And it's during this carriage ride to Hanging Rock uh, that these rules and codes just begin a little bit at a time to be, get to get cast aside, and that's with the removal of the gloves. 
the removal of the shoes on the rock is another one later on. And it's almost as if the rock kind of overpowers this facade of white control over the Australian countryside. Victoria Bladen actually wrote, The rock is a space of uncharted territory. It's not mapped or controlled, anathema to the rigours of the boarding school and the petty tyrannies of Mrs. Appleyard. And this kind of sets the tone for our reading of the rock and its landscape as harsh and brutal. As an audience, we don't really know why this happens. And as characters performing these actions, the girls give us no indication as to why they're performing them. And seemingly they have no control over what they're doing. Peter Weir definitely personifies the rock. Mm, It's another character. He literally gives it several faces. Yeah. And they all look like old men crying or sad, those Mm. faces in the rock. He also gives it a hum. Yeah. The idea of, you know, gentrified people set against, incongruously against, that kind of the wilderness and the open vastness, the natural wildness of, you know, the outback has, has fascinated painters for centuries. And it's definitely a part of what makes Picnic at Hanging Rock interesting. And I mean, that's where pastoral, as I said, originally came from, yeah. ma- mainly from paintings and poetry. I mean, the Fitzhubert party in their Victorian dress with their deck chairs and the tea table mm. and the china and the picnic basket, it's all just plonked like a parasite. It's visually symbolic of how humankind moved away from nature Mm. as we gentrified and formed infrastructure and built societies and that this somehow somehow contravenes our fundamental human impulses, you know, that we are essentially still people that need water and the earth and food and all the things that we can basically get without these spoils and that we've essentially, you know, we're we're deforesting the world to to make our lives more convenient and comfortable and affordable housing and everything. Because um, the gentrification side of it is personified by Mrs. Appleyard and the girls and their life and their habits and behaviours at the school, he needs to personify the rock to give it sort of almost like a natural counterpart. Mm. There should be a balance between civilization and nature in this film because they are two opposing forces. Yes. There is a sense of rejection about The Rock, that it rejects Mrs. Appleyard's orderliness and the oppressed, buttoned-up, pretty little quiet girl thing that (laughs) Appleyard College is about. Victoria Bladen actually wrote Edith, uh, one of the reasons that Edith is rejected, she says, Edith is too attached to the earthly world with its comforts of cake to be an appropriate muse for the rock. She is not sufficiently light like the ethereal Miranda or of intellectual weight as are Marion and Miss McCraw. While Irma has beauty and empathy, ultimately she is defined by her wealth and thus seems to be rejected by the rock. In taking Miranda, the epitome of beauty and grace, and Marion and Miss McCraw, the characters attributed with knowledge and intelligence, the rock appears to take the best elements that humanity has to offer all the girls and the people that are in less denial about their true natures, that they're not essentially distracted by wealth, creature comforts, housing. You know what I mean? It takes the ones that that are most connected to the fundamental nature of human life. There are so many references in the book to Miranda understanding things naturally that other girls don't have the experience or the years to know yet, but that she just fundamentally understands them. And she does seem to be an older soul. There's something about her eyes and how sedate she is, how calm she is, that suggests that there's all this knowledge there. There's this just natural understanding of things. Yeah. You know, the way I look at it is this. The bloody cop, the bloody abo tracker, 
And the bloody dog can't find them. No one bloody can. People have been bushed before today. And as far as I'm concerned, well, that's the stone end of it. Well, it's not the end of it as far as I'm concerned. Australian films have this ability to reference the power and importance of Indigenous Australians by the process of exclusion. I think it's no mistake that they employ an Aboriginal tracker to try to help find the girls, um, and that obviously leads nowhere. Even with the pro- this process of exclusion, they say so much about Indigenous culture, and I think that they say so much about Indigenous culture by saying what they say about white culture in the case of Picnic, that white culture can't conquer this rock, the rock takes from white culture. And yet Aboriginal people had used this this rock and they had used these um, these grounds around these areas. And it was 26,000 years before European settlers came to Australia that the area's first inhabitants were the Jajawarung, Woiwurrung, or Wurundjeri, and Tungurung tribes. And There's some butchery of some names for oh, you, Oh, it's horrible, people. sorry. <laughs> And they continue to maintain these cultural and spiritual connections with what they knew as Nyanalong. There's a Yorta Yorta tribe, Indigenous theatre producer. So Yorta Yorta was just north of this area. And he says, The mystique and spiritual essence of the rock has contributed to the story of our dreaming, which binds my people to our creator spirits and country. And uh, the British Telegraph said that the site was used for sacred ceremonies and initiations. However, they avoided venturing to the rock summit, which they believed to be inhabited by evil spirits. And obviously, white people, they don't avoid venturing to the peak. And that brings about their undoing. Their arrogance. Well, it is kind of arrogance, yeah. I did read somewhere that people go to Pinica Hanging Rock, or go to Hanging Rock, rather, and they just yell, Miranda, Miranda, where are you, Miranda? And... A lot of Indigenous Australians are saying, well, the rock is actually a really significant place for us. And a lot of genocide happened there. Mm -hmm. Real people died there or went missing. No, that's right. But all white people can do is go up to the rock and mourn a fictional character. I mean, look, this is something that comes across in so many different cultures. And uh, unfortunately, particularly in Australian culture, which is the whitewashing of our history. Yeah. I believe if you go to Hanging Rock, there is an exhibit that is an interactive exhibit all about the girls who went missing. Certainly we're making strides in our culture. We're doing welcome to country ceremonies so often during public events and all kinds of things like that. But unfortunately, for a lot of people, Australian history starts in the late 1700s or the 1800s or the 1900s and not not well, bc nothing really happened before federation damien <laughs> exactly well this it's I, I think it's kind of funny that this film is set in 1900 which is that year Okay, we're now going to play our interview with author Helen Goltz, who wrote the book No Picnic at Hanging Rock. So I think I told you in email that your book kept me up nights. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Thanks. I had a funny review from The Australian, but The Australian always uses academics to review books. And I thought, God, it's not an academic book. It's kind of a fan book. But anyway, at the end of the day, it was fun to write. 
they, they their criticism was that it was too academic? No, she sort of thought there was, you know, weaknesses in the plot and some of my arguments weren't, you know, logical or, you know, whatever. And I thought, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it, you know, it's a fan book, you know, it's just... It's, Nobody really knows some of the stuff anyway, as you know from reading it. It's not, you know, it's all very ambiguous. Well, that's right. The Australian can be a little hoity-toity anyway. Oh, yeah, look, absolutely. I wish they'd stop using academics for reviews, you know, because most of the time these, you know, books are sort of, you know, for people's enjoyment. And look, you know, the, you know yourself, it's like seeing a film. You know, somebody else love it, somebody will hate it. It's so subjective. Well, that's right. I have to say, though, I read, um, I hadn't ever read Joan Lindsay's novel, uh, I'd just seen the movie, you know, and seen it to death. Yeah. Uh, but I read the novel and then straight after that I read your book and it was the perfect, perfect, like, companion piece to her novel. Oh, I loved it. So let me ask you then, just quickly, what did you think of the Al Foxtel remake? Oh, look, I got through about two episodes mm. and thought uh, that it had kind of drained the story of all of its artistic merit and kind of turns into a bit more of a sort of tawdry, soapy feeling. But, I mean, what did you think? Pretty much the same. I mean, I, I love the actors and I, you know, love the, the cinematography, the way it was shot and everything. And, but, you know, like I'm a purist and <laughs> I know they were trying not to do the same thing because, you know, there was no point doing the same thing. But I, I just thought it lost all that um, spirit and charm that, you know, that Peter Williams had, that mystery and eeriness about it just wasn't there and what they did to mrs appleyard she was unrecognizable i know know. that's that's not a you know um, a widowed big-breasted um you know (laughs) madame by any means you know (laughs) but anyway yeah no i was really disappointed i don't even think to be honest that i'll um keep going with it i i think i'm the same as you i i love the original too much and all i kept doing was just kind of um noticing how it was different and not just kind of losing myself in it yeah, I'd love to talk to someone who hadn't, um, you know, wasn't attached to the original Beach Team to see what they thought of it, you know, with no bias. But, yeah, we're probably too far gone to answer that one. <laughs> I think most people probably, um, you know, roughly our age may not have seen the original. And so I think that would definitely help your, with your enjoyment of it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a lot older than you. But, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, seeing it in isolation is probably the best thing, to be honest. But anyway, look, I'm all for um, Australian productions. But, uh, yeah, disappointing. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm glad you agree. I would have been shattered if you thought it was brilliant. (laughs) 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 When did you first see the movie? Or when, I guess, when did you first read the book? And then when did you first see the movie? Oh, look, I read the book. Like, it came out in 67, so I was only, you know, three then. But um, I I must have read it sort of in my 20s or so. Um, And the movie came out eight years after. So um, I don't remember when I became a junkie. And I bought the DVD um, not that long ago and watched the whole thing again. And, you know, it's funny when you watch things in, um, like that. You, you know how you go back and you think, oh, this was so brilliant. Then you go back and watch it again and think, oh, okay, it was all right. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> it wasn't anywhere as good as I remembered. And, of course, time's taken over. We're a lot more savvy now as well. But, uh, yeah, I love the book. I love the book from the first read. And then, of course, I thought the movie just delivered, which is often unusual, as you know. Um, being cellular junkies, usually you'll read the book and the movie doesn't ever quite stand up to it. But, boy, I reckon this one did a great job of it. Yeah, I think so too. And, I mean, obviously, you know, writing a book like this, it's, you know, you really have to commit to your subject matter in order to be able to do it justice. So I suppose why of all all the Australian films or all of any films did you decide to um, dedicate a a book to this film? 
Yeah, it's interesting because I knew the 50th anniversary was coming up um, of its release. Uh, it was, you know, 1967 and it was coming to 2017. I thought, gee, they'll do, surely they'll do something around that. And of uh, course, I'd always liked it and I saw it again in the library. I thought I must have a revisit of it. And the other reason I, I did it, and the main reason I did it, was that when I started thinking about doing something, I spoke to a lot of people and a lot of people in their 20s honestly thought it was a real story. Now, I hate to be a sort of, you know, party pooper and, and go, nah, it's not. And I try not to do that in the book, to be honest, even though I've just done that now. <laughs> but I was amazed how many people, because it was on school curriculums for a while, actually thought it was a true story. And, of course, that had never happened today with, you know, the internet and everything. Everyone would just go online and have a bit of a look and look for the press clippings, um, which I did from, you know, Trove. But I was amazed that she'd pulled that off. I thought that was truly impressive that she'd managed to pull off that. And she never responded to that question. You know, Joan Lindsay hated that question, was it true or not? It's intriguing that she, you know, that, that, that there's still the sense of mystery and the sense of, gee, those girls went missing down there and, you know, where are they? I think Joan Lindsay, like, I don't know much about her except um, what I learned in your book, but she seems to be a really enigmatic figure. Did you, did you feel like you kind of understood her any better after you did your research? No, thanks for asking that. No, I think you nailed it. She's really quite eccentric. And, uh, you know, she had a lot of experience in the area. Like she, she went to college herself in that area, around that um, Wood End type area in Victoria, to her own college, uh, school college. And uh, I suspect she based Apple Yard Ladies College a little bit on it, where they had the borders, etc. She went to Clyde Girls Grammar. So they would have done day trips to Hanging Rock when she was younger as well. Um, but she also would have been exposed to that sort of lost... Uh, child syndrome is um, from the local Victorian galleries where paintings were held which held that theme because that lost child in Australian literature and film and arts was quite a strong theme in that early 20th century and of course her husband Daryl later in later years when she was married um, was actually director of the art gallery there in Victoria so she would have seen all those uh, paintings etc um, director of the National Gallery of Victoria so she, you know Frederick McCullum's painting of Lost and looking towards Hanging Rock and all those paintings that are hanging there. So she was probably inspired by all that. But she was a bit of a sort of a strange character. She said in her autobiography that she couldn't wear a watch and she couldn't have a clock in the house because time would stop. So that's a bit of a hint for, you know, picnic and Hanging Rock readers, you know, this fascination with time and, and place and when things happen, slipping in time was not one of her passions. So she really was a bit of an eccentric character and, she really, honestly, I feel, believes something did happen there. And she told the publicist of the book that she felt something really did happen at that place. It's kind of funny that, you know, she refused to say whether or not it was true, but would give these tiny little hints that it was, like the experience yeah. with Anne Lambert. So so what happened with Anne Lambert? Because you spoke with her for the book, didn't you? I did. And honestly, she... She's absolutely um, beautiful insider. She's outside Anne-Marie's Lambert and she's, um, she gave me an interview and she's a um, psychologist now, uh, working as a psychologist, I believe. You know what was really funny, Lou, because when I rang her up, she really caught me off guard because when she spoke, she still spoke like Miranda. So she said to the phone in this beautiful, dreamy Miranda voice and, and I thought, oh, my God, if she says, you know, everything starts and finishes and back at the right time, I've got to call out. I found you, Miranda, myself. You know, it was just so amazing talking to her. And, you know, but she was very charming. And, and she said she had this experience on the set where um, she uh, was having a bad day, basically, and she'd been saying that line, and you remember it from the book and the film, where she says to Edith, don't look down at your boots, look up. Anyway, she said they must have done that scene about ten times, and for whatever reason, 
Peter Weir wasn't happy with her. She didn't know what she was doing wrong with it. So she said in the end she thinks they took the first take. But so while everybody went off to have lunch, she decided to have a walk across country and get herself together again and whatever. And she said she became aware that this older woman was, was cross-countrying after her and trying to catch up with her. So she stopped and she thought, that must be Jane Lindsay on set. Anyway, she said when Jane came up to her, she put her arms around her and said, Miranda, it's been so long. She said it was kind of incredibly moving and she because she was in full costume, of course. And she said she just waited for a moment for that to pass. And then she said, oh, hello, you must be Joan. And she introduced herself. But she said that Joan wasn't really interested in that. She wasn't really interested in her being Anne-Louise Lambert. But she said it was a really bizarre experience. And she said it made her think at that point in time that whatever the facts were, emotionally, uh, this story was true for Joan Lindsay. And she kind of did that to all of the actors, not not to that degree, but she kind of would speak all of them as if they were their characters, wouldn't she? As though she's seen them personified and actually believe that. But she also used to personify the rock, if you noticed in the book, um, every time the, the rock is spoken about, it's capitalised like it's a person. Yeah, sort of like a majestic but very threatening, very powerful presence. Yeah, have you been to Hanging Rock? No, I've been to Martindale oh, Hall. Must. It's quite eerie. It, you know, like it, it, it's, it's funny, though. It's closed on Christmas Day. I know that sounds weird. I went there for some reason on Christmas Day. And <laughs> you, don't know how, you think, how can you close a rock? But they close all the outer surroundings because it's a national park. Um, so don't go on Christmas Day. But any other day of the year, it's open. But, yeah, it's, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Too, so I'm thinking. But I've never been to So you've been to the actual set of the movie. Yes, I went a few years ago. Wow. And it looks exactly the same. Um, It's interesting, you know, how she kind of personifies the rock in the book, and I think that's one thing that the film did really well was make the rock feel alive. And it's always there. It's kind of like this looming shadow over shoulders. And when you look at the slipping time as well, uh, the rock keeps it secret, for want of a better word. You know, she uses that very effectively on, on the rock, you know, not giving away anything, not giving up the girls. Um, and there's lots of theory around, you know, the power of nature in Australia and the power of rock forms like that. And, of course, their Indigenous history as well makes them feel more um, threatening and real as though the land's sort of, you know, in charge, especially when these girls had on this full Victorian dress. You know, they've, they've got this this gear on that's so in contrast to the bush. You know, they're wearing the whole crinolines and the dresses and skirts and the gloves and the hats, and they're out in this, around this, you know, rugged, hard, scary sort of rock. It's kind of such a great contrast, and it, and it becomes a sort of looming evil figure. Do you think the book would have had would have endured as long or um, had such a wonderful legacy if Joan Lindsay had sufficiently resolved the mystery? You know, I don't know. I've given that a lot of thoughts. It's a good question. I think I think maybe it would have in its era because it has had all that charm in the era, but I think if she released it today, um, it wouldn't have had the same or anywhere near the same effect or success because we're just too savvy today. And we, you know, we know straight away it wasn't true, and I think the fact that um, there was some belief in that, and it was much harder to find out in those days too what was true and what wasn't true, you know, in terms of tracking a story and finding names, and and this is a remote area as well. Um, that I'm not sure it would work today. But I don't know. I don't know whether if she... I think it would have lost its charm if they had just been killed in a landslide or um, if the bodies were found later and it looked like they tumbled. It just wouldn't have had that lovely mystery and intrigue about it. And, of course, with those wonderful pan pipes and the music from the movie that Peter Weir used, it just enhanced that so much, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You no doubt know well about this, but... What happened to all the cast and crew of that film too? It was just such a weird sort of 
thing to some degree they they all went on to success or some of them died early or some one even took her own life as well it was just sort of such a such a bizarre thing um how that panned out as well almost like that that movie had even though it wasn't shot on location almost like that movie had touched them all in some strange way yeah i mean especially obviously the the fates of um jane vallis and rachel roberts very sad yeah, yeah well rachel roberts um you know, died in a similar way. She played the headmistress, Miss Appleyard, and she died in a similar way. Both ladies took their own lives. And Rachel was a, you know, a BAFTA award-winning actor. Um, she was 53 at the time. And we know Miss Appleyard, you know, leapt from the top of a cliff like a big black eagle. Or so they said something similar as it says in the book, which was sad as well. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, Margaret Nelson, of course, who played the gorgeous Sarah, the little orphan who didn't get to go that morning. I mean, what a sad story she is, but... Nobody knows or has found, and I haven't, actually maybe you managed to, what happened to Margaret Nelson. She more or less sort of disappeared after a few more years of acting and no one's ever been able to track her since. Yeah, no, I haven't. I mean, I, I did, a, I did a, I suppose, a cursory search, but you're right. And, and I've read a few articles now about people who just can't seem to locate her. No, it's really bizarre. And of course, the lady who played Edith, Christine Schuller, um, died when she was 48. Uh, she's, her son and her husband uh, survived her, but... Uh, she was um, 27 years of age uh, in the book when she died. Um, so it's, it's an interesting one too. I don't know why Joan Lindsay finished her off so early in the book. She survived the rock but then as a 17-year-old but then died 27 in the book, which I thought was interesting too. So many of her choices are so ambiguous that it can drive you mad thinking about them. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting that the executive producer of the movie, Patricia Lovell, said she was absolutely terror-struck when she went to the rock. She was terror-struck. She didn't want to go any further. She went there with her daughter, and she didn't want to get out of the car, and her daughter made her. And then her daughter wanted her to go back another time just to get over it, but she said she was just too frightened at the rock, which I thought was really interesting. I, I didn't feel frightened there. I thought it was fascinating. But I can understand how it can have that effect, especially if you're making a movie about girls missing there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose her name is now indelibly linked to it. So, I mean, she yeah, kind of exactly. gave – yeah, well, she gave Hanging Rock, I guess um, – infamy in a way yeah exactly um, <laughs> yeah it makes it definitely an interesting tourist destination if nothing else what was your research process Helen because your book is so I mean it, it, I feel like it is to a degree academic but it's also just so engaging and so readable and accessible but the research process must have been pretty exhaustive oh thank you for saying that I tried to write it as a fan book because um you know at the end of the day I'm a fan of the book and I wanted people to read it as a fan book and it's interesting. It's done reasonably well. Oh, it's done better in the US. I'm not sure why that is. Um, I don't know whether people over there saw the movie and, or, and, and wanted bought it by accident instead of the picnic and hanging off, um, or they just wanted a bit more information. But um, I, d- I did do a lot of research on it because a lot of people have written blogs, papers, and stories about it. I kind of want to bring all their opinions in together because some of them are really fantastic, some of their thoughts and what happened, and some of them are very intellectual, which I kind of – so, I, I mean, you know, we're dry and I want to just sort of, you know, I don't want to say dumb down, but I, I want to just make their points in a little bit more of an entertaining way so that we can sort of think, oh, yeah, okay, I consider that they might have been, you know, virgin sacrifices taken by aliens or whatever the case may be, um, you know, or victims of the land and all that. So it it took a fair bit to do a bit of time on the research and putting it together and I just, I did want to document it all properly because I'm an English literature major myself, but... At the end of the day, I just wanted it to be a fan book. I wanted people to read it because they wanted to know a little bit more about it all and were kind of fascinated by it and wanted to know more about her and what might have happened to the girls and all the theories that were around. So probably about a, you know six to eight months of research, which is 
you know, not too bad for, for any book of that nature. So, I mean, having really been one of like the foremost authorities on Joan Lindsay's book now and, and what might have happened, do you have a personal theory about what happened to the girls? I, my personal theory is we're not ever supposed to know. Um, but I think, <laughs> and, and I and I think it's a time slip. I think you know, I'd be so disappointed, Luke, if they just caught in a landslide. I mean, really, how disappointing would that be? Yeah. Well, look, Helen, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Um, oh, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you for having me, Luke. I'm just wondering, where can people go? Because you're quite a prolific writer. You're a writer of fiction and nonfiction. Where can they go to find out more about you and, and um, perhaps to get some of your, your books? The publishing site is atlasproductions.com.au, so atlasproductions.com.au. Um, and there's some of the authors that I publish there as well who are terrific. I would tell anybody who has any interest in the film to pick up your book. It is such a fun, fast Excellent read. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's a little short read, which is good these days, isn't it? No, I won't be plotting away for too long. Well, that's right, yes. <laughs> there is one thing I remember. What do you remember, Edith? Tell us. It was when I was coming down, when I was running. It was a cloud. What sort of a cloud? It was red. I remember it clearly. It was just after I passed Miss McCraw. Who did you say you saw? Miss McCraw. She was going up the hill as I was going down. Did she stop? Did you speak? No. She was too far away. She was about as far away as those dead trees are over there. (laughs) She was funny. So my theory about what being a hanging rock means is this. I think it all comes down to Valentine's Day. The film makes a very big point of telling us this is happening on Valentine's Day. It starts with girls swapping poems and pressed flowers to one another and staring starry-eyed out at the skies as they read love sonnets and, you know, do it with real reverence. You know, these are girls that want to fall in love, that are excited by the idea of romance. I think that Picnic at Hanging Rock is essentially a metaphor for matrimony and what it meant for women in the Victorian age. So just stay with me as I go through this, okay? It's interesting. I've heard, uh, I, I have read a couple of theories, not necessarily about matrimony, but certainly tying it to sexuality. Okay. So Miranda is the feminine ideal. She's attractive, virginal, beautiful. The rock is male. It's alluring, but it's also powerful and dangerous. And there are male faces in the facades of the rock. The Rock seduces the women it desires, which are Miranda, Marion, and Miss McCraw, and it rejects the one it the ones it does not, Edith and Irma. The girls' adventure is sensuous, you know, as they go up this rock. They're forever touching the facade of the rock, they're leaning into it, they're dancing on its surface. The deeper they travel, the more garments they shed. They fall asleep on its surface as they might in the arms of a lover. The first step in courtship is to break away from your former family or the sanctuary of the picnic group. The second is seduction, which is the journey up the rock as they disrobe. The third and final step is commitment or marriage. Is the journey up the rock equal to the journey up the shaft of a man? (laughs) Can you please not base level this? Sorry. So the third and final step is matrimony, which is when the girls make the leg of their ascent uh, and are ultimately consumed by their seducer. They don't look back at Edith because love is blinding. 
You know, when we know what we want to go for, we go for it. We have our blinders on. Irma is seduced by the rock, but she doesn't marry. So when she returns to the school, she's wearing red, like a scarlet letter. And she's received with anger by the girls. And she's essentially ostracized by the girls as women, you know, women who were adulterers were in the 1900s. The result of matrimony for the three women is that they disappear, which is genuinely what marriage meant for women in that era. They become a shadow of their husband. They become Mrs. whatever his name is. Uh, The doctor's emphasis on whether or not the girls are intact speaks to this consensus at the time that a woman's worth was predicated on her viability for marriage. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone in Keza, was she intact? It's what Mrs. Appleyard asks. The idea of women at the mercy of men is further established with the Sarah Wayborn character. Her survival hinges upon her male guardian, Mr. Cosgrove, paying her tuition. And Mrs. Appleyard makes it clear that if tuition fees are not forthcoming, she'll be sent to an orphanage, and that ultimately leads to her suicide and death. When I started to kind of build it and build it, oh, that explains Irma, that explains Edith. It just seemed to all fit, finally, all the pieces of the puzzle fit for me. As this sort of metaphor for what it meant to be a woman in this age, who then became a wife, or the ones who became adulterers, Mm. or the ones who weren't marriage material like Edith despite the fact that she got 11 Valentine's Day cards, which I found very hard to believe. Edith got 11? At the beginning, she's counting them. I think she wrote them herself. (laughs) What do you think of that theory? Are you impressed? No, I'm really impressed. And also, um, you went this really wholesome route with that. Okay. Dave Crew for SBS Film in 2015, he looked a little bit at this, basically as the idea, and this is an idea that's out there, that the disappearance into the rock works as a metaphor for the loss of that virginity. Uh-huh. I mean, they do go into some kind of pseudo-vaginal openings on the rock. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> but Dave Crew wrote that this is something for them, the loss of their virginity that is anticipated and dreaded in equal measure. And I think some credence is given to this reading of the film because later on when Irma returns from the rock, and it's bizarre that you didn't bring this up, she's no longer wearing her corset. Mm. There's a website called Feminist Feministing and a writer called Nazar writes, a woman not wearing her one in those days was said to be advertising her sexual availability. But again, that does tie in with what you've said about matrimony, that she is rejected, then she's wearing red, she's got that scarlet letter on She's her. seduced but doesn't marry. That's right. It's like she has lost her virginity, but now she's not intact. Even though they literally t- say she is intact. That's right. But yeah, I think that's a really good reading of the movie. And there's obviously there is sexuality and sensuality throughout the entire film. Do you consider Penny Hanging Rock to be a supernatural film? Uh, whether or not I do... The really good thing about Picnic at Hanging Rock is that we're allowed to have those interpretations of the movie. But don't need them. Well, we don't need them. I mean, does that stopped clock signify that there is some supernatural force present around the rock? Or is it a mechanical failure? You know, whatever you'd like to believe, you're allowed to just go ahead and believe that. Yeah. And you're allowed to read the movie anyway. You know, maybe they maybe they were taken up on the rock by somebody and that's why they were never found. Does Bertie's sister Sarah really come to him the night she's died and say goodbye? Or was it just a dream and a coincidence? Mm-hmm. Did you notice that one? No. So you know Birdie is always going on about his sister Sarah and that he grew up in an orphanage and they yeah, were yeah, split yeah, up. Yeah. You yeah. got that Sarah was his sister. Mm. 
So there's a part in the movie where he tells, he wakes up and he tells Michael that he's had this strange dream. Yeah. Where Sarah came to him and said goodbye. And that coincides with the death of Sarah. That's another sort of mystical thing that happens in the film. I don't know if you read about the nearby town of Woodend and a place called Anti-Gravity Hill. So it's eight kilometres from Hanging Rock and it's home to a place known as Anti-Gravity Hill wherein a ball or a car or whatever will roll uphill instead of down. And this is a documented phenomenon. It's on You, you can go and watch videos of it on YouTube. As we've said throughout this podcast, a lot of these themes from the novel and the film are traced back to actual events. And of course, the novel and the book have made the actual place far more famous and therefore the stories of its supernatural forces far greater. I guess there's an element of credulity to whatever reading you put into this movie. And I think that's really one of the great movies. You and I disagree on one of those kinds of movies as well. One where it's not clear what happened. I think we disagree on it anyway. Doubt about, you know, whether the father really committed these crimes or not. And I think that has one of those great endings as well, because Meryl Streep ends the movies by saying, I have such doubts. Yeah. So you think he molested the boy? Oh, God, I can't remember. I haven't seen it for a while, but I, I think we both disagreed, didn't we? Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's a perfect example of a film where you can interpret it one of two ways. That's right. Yeah, I think the film's made stronger for that because you can go into it and have your own interpretations of the movie. Mm. I mean, obviously, if you are looking at it as a kind of allegory for matrimony, how does that speak to your reading of the supernatural forces at work in the film? Well, I suppose you could say that love is sort of something that is quite mystifying. It's not something that's scientifically measurable or... You can't test for love. No. And so, you know, the uncanny. There are things that happen that are uncanny. You don't necessarily have to ascribe a supernatural cause. But you can't deny that there are things that happen in the world that defy rational explanations. I like that that's in the film. I like that the film addresses that side of human experience. And whether or not it is supernatural or there are scientific explanations, like you've said about the anti-gravity hill, uh, it really doesn't matter. There are only a few minor differences between the film and book. Mm -hmm. The book. The film is so faithful. Finally, your turn to read a book of a movie that we're doing. <laughs> yeah, because I never do that. <laughs> it's faithful to the point where, do you know the part where Miranda falls asleep on the rock with the other girls mm-hmm. and a lizard crawls under her arm? Mm-hmm. That's in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the tiny details that are put in. And I guess that might have been part of the reason that Joan Lindsay decided to go with Peter Weir as a director as well, because he does have a, a, an absurd attention to detail. And I think he genuinely respected and loved her, her book and wanted to translate it in a faithful way Bertie and Sarah which are clearly brother and sister in the film in the book Albert never mentions his sister's name and the relationship is only very vaguely hinted at so it's another one of those things that y- you can't say definitively It is they are related the other thing that's interesting is do you know the teacher who straps up Sarah she's kind of got mm-hmm. like a very sour face mouth glasses bun yep so her brother comes to the college after the girls have disappeared and Did he you just say mouth glasses sour mouthed oh, glasses right. okay. bun 
Um, her brother <laughs> comes to the school and says to Mrs. Appleyard that he's taking his sister out because of the school's deteriorating reputation. And Mrs. Appleyard says, good, she's useless. Get rid of her. Don't come back. They go and stay at a hotel and they leave a fire burning too close to a curtain and the hotel burns down and they both die. In the book. Yeah. (laughs) Unnecessary. Well, it's a big instance in the book and it's just further kind of um, goes to this idea of things falling apart after the Mm. girls disappear. Obviously, it's too much story to put in the film. Well, also, like we talked about when we were doing the podcast on Misery is that when you put something into a book which takes a lot more hours to read than a movie does to watch, it's so much greater when you then decide to put that into the movie because it obviously takes up time in something that has less time. Yeah. One thing that I just think is strange is that at the very last, in the very last scene, Mrs. Appleyard is wearing like a funeral dress. All black. Yeah, well, that's why I think she suicides. No, no. She's wearing it as if she knows beforehand that Sarah Wayborn's been found That's dead. That's because she killed Sarah. You think so? Absolutely. No, people say it was a suicide. Well, people say a lot of things, Luke. I think, no, I think she killed Sarah. I mean, she made up the lie that Sarah had been taken by her... Guardian. Guardian, yeah. Yeah, I... I, I, I immediately read that as a murder. That's another freaking ambiguity in this story. Mm. Is like, was she murdered by Mrs. Appleyard or was it a suicide? I mean, did you consider that she was murdered? Yes, I did. Yeah. But then everything I've read since is like, no, it would have been a suicide. Mrs. Appleyard, why would she kill her? I, I don't know why she would kill her, but I definitely read that she did kill her. Interesting. <laughs> if we have any listeners that have gotten this far through the episode, can you please let us know if you think... I feel like I've been really uh, unable to form my thoughts this episode, so I apologise for that. I think I've done fabulously. No, you've done really well. Thank (laughs) God one of us did. Thank God one of us came to the table today. (laughs) Damien, tell us in your fumbly, oafish way about this film's release and reception. Well, usually I just read this direct from a page, so I shouldn't fuck this up too bad. So Picnic at Hanging Rock was released in Australian cinemas on August the 8th of 1975 and was an instant success. It grossed $5.12 million on its budget of $443,000 and at the time was the highest grossing Australian production ever made. Uh, I believe even in 2016 dollars it is the 12th most successful Australian production ever made. We've already talked about the importance of this film in Australia's new wave, so I won't dwell on that, but needless to say, the importance of this film to our industry due to its its domestic and international success is immeasurable. Vincent Canby reviewed the film for the New York Times in 1979 and said that it was both spooky and sexy and wrote a lot about the sexual undertones running through the film. He noted that American audiences would possibly feel cheated at the lack of a resolution, but that Weir had succeeded in evoking his dream within a dream world, and that because the film has a hypnotic spell, I accept its excesses. Roger Ebert reviewed the film in 1980 and gave it three and a half stars out of four. He too focused on its inconclusiveness, writing, What's going on here, we ask, knowing there is no possible answer, and half pleased by the enigma. If this film had a rational and tidy conclusion, it would be a good deal less interesting. But as a tantalising puzzle, a tease, a suggestion of a forbidden answer just out of earshot, it works hypnotically and very nicely indeed. He would then, Roger Ebert would then 
uh, review Peter Weir's director's cut in 1998, which was, uh, I believe, when it was released for the first time, and the whole the film was re-released to cinemas at that point. He reappraised it up to four stars and put it on his list of great movies. And he brings in discussion of Nicholas Rogue's earlier film, Walkabout, stating the suggestion in both Walkabout and Picnic is that Aboriginal life cannot be sustained in the cities, nor European-based life in nature. It is intriguing that girls on the brink of maturity are the focal point in both films. Of course, some people miss the point, including Dave Keir of the Chicago Reader, who wrote that it was a spottily effective mood piece based on an actual incident in which several schoolgirls disappeared during a day trip to a backcountry mountain. <laughs> backcountry mountain. Yeah, just a mountain. The film was nominated for a number of AFI awards at the 1976 ceremony, uh, and it was actually competing with a film that was released pretty much exactly a year later, even though they were both released in the middle of the year, and that's because the AFI was changing how they were doing the ceremony. So Picnic at Hang Rock was part of the year that actually encompassed a year and a half. It was nominated for Best Film, which it lost to The Devil's Playground, the Fred Chapisi film. Best Director, which... Peter Weir lost to Fred Chapisi. Best Supporting Actor uh, for Tony Llewellyn-Jones as Tom. Best Supporting Actress for Anne Lambert as Miranda. And Best Screenplay and Best Cinematography, again losing both of those to The Devil's Playground. Helen Morse got a nomination for Best Actress for Picnic, but she lost to herself for the same role in Caddy. And that it didn't win a single award is kind of stunning, don't you think? Yeah, well, it certainly lasted longer than Devil's Playground. Yeah, I think so. We released the director's cut in 1998, excising seven minutes of footage. This is the version that was first released in cinemas and then by the Criterion Collection, and which has since been the predominant cut of the film released on home video. It was re-released by Criterion as a Blu-ray in 2014. It has been released twice in Australia by Umbrella Entertainment, first on DVD in 2007 and later restored on Blu-ray in 2010. A deluxe three-disc DVD was released by Second Sight Films in the UK in 2008, which includes both the original cut and the director's cut. And many of the promotional items from the various releases of the film and the film itself are preserved in the collection at Australia's National Film and Sound Archive, and there is a really quite amazing online exhibition of these items for this film that we've linked to in the show notes. So I think it's time to do the quiz. Do the quiz! I hope you've learned your poetry, Sarah. You can go first. Okay. Which iconic Australian television series that went on to air 510 episodes did Picnic at Hanging Rock producer Hal McElroy go on to create? Mm. Is it a comedy? No. And this isn't 20 questions. Prisoner? No. Blue Healers. Ugh. <laughs> With Lisa McCune? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> um, what is Peter Weir's middle name? He doesn't have one. <laughs> Lindsay, as in John oh, Lindsay. Uh, yeah. That is uncanny. <laughs> True or false? Mm, I love these. John Jarrett, who played Albert Crundle in Picnic, and Ingrid Mason, originally cast as Miranda and who ended up playing Rosamond, both graduated from the same class of the same acting school in the same year. Uh, true. Very good, okay. You get an extra point if you answer this correctly. Name the school and the year. 
It was the... <laughs> You're going to make some shit up now. <laughs> NIDA school in Queensland in 1973. For fuck's sake, Luke. It was not. You fuck off. Did I get it? Yes. I did not. <laughs> I totally bullshitted that. It was NIDA in 1973. <laughs> oh, God, I'm amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Oh, Jesus. So now you got two points because I just gave you an extra point. <laughs> to your zero. <laughs> Uh, when was the building of Martindale Hall completed? 1912. 1879? So close. By a man named Edmund Bowman, who drowned 30 years later in the River Wakefield. Oh. So the whole, the, the Martindale Hall has a whole sad history to it. You've already won. Yeah. So anyway, name three members <laughs> of the principal cast or crew of Picnic at Hang Rock that have been nominated for or won Academy Awards? Peter Weir. For what? I have to say what no, they you don't have for. to, but you're right. Um, Jackie Weaver. Yes. And probably the cinematographer, and I don't know his name. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Peter Weir has been nominated for Best Director four times. Witness, Dead Poets Society, The Truman Show, and Master and Commander. He's been nominated for Best Picture for Master and Commander because he was a producer. And he was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Green Card. Russell Boyd for Best Cinematography for Master and Commander. And Jackie Weaver, Best Supporting Actress for Animal Kingdom and Silver Linings Playbook. And the other one, the only person who has actually won an Academy Award who was involved with Picnic at Hang Rock was Rachel Roberts. She won Best Actress in 1964 for This Sporting Life. Jackie Weaver won, didn't she? Oh, no, she didn't win. She was nominated twice. Yeah, right. Interesting. Hmm. What was the name of the college Joan Lindsay attended, which some believe was the inspiration for Appleyard College? Peach Garden University. <laughs> Peach Garden. Well, it's like Appleyard. <laughs> That was called Clyde Girls Grammar School. Oh, that's not like Apple Yard at all. <laughs> so I won that 3-0. You won that, yeah. Do you have a bonus question? Oh, yeah. I've got two. Who was the original screenwriter approached to adapt? You know what? You always get the ones that I give you, and you always never get the ones <laughs> that I do as the bonus questions. Who was the original screenwriter approached to adapt Picnic at Hanging Rock, and which later Peter Weir directed films did he write? Well, that's a really hard question. See? should have put that in there. I have no idea. So David Williamson, he wrote Gallipoli and The Year of Living Dangerously. Hmm. And I have one more. Which famous Italian film from the 1960s is Picnic Hanging Rock often compared to due to both featuring unsolved disappearances? Oh. Nah. Michelangelo Antonioni's Cannes Jury Prize winning 1960 film Le Aventura. Ah, oh, yes. The good old Le Aventura that I know very well. What was the name of Joan Lindsay's biography? Beyond the Rock. Ah, uh, yeah, biography. Not autobiography. Autobiography. Oh. Uh, a true story. Time Without Clocks. Oh, I knew it as well. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, rating and final comment. You'll be happy to know that I've given this film five stars. Well, so you fucking should. It clearly is a five-star movie. There you go. If this isn't, what is? It's, like, amazing. It's not my favourite Australian film, but it's um, it's definitely a really special Australian film. What's your favourite? Hmm. 
I don't know. Maybe Little Fish. Okay. Yeah. Five stars for me too. Absolutely love it. I think that the girls going up to the rock and the way that that shot is done with them from behind, low, looking up, sort of from Edith's perspective, in slow motion, is one of the most haunting images in cinema. I'm glad you explained that because it sounded like you were just about to say, I like the part where the girls went up the rock. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you make me sound like I was... No, it's just that's what somebody who would say that. I like the girls that go up the rock. I like that bit. Remember when you were like 12 years old and you would come out of the cinema and you'd have to say your favourite part of the movie that you just saw? (laughs) What was your favourite bit? (laughs) My favourite bit was when Jaws ate the helicopter in Jaws 2. (laughs) Of any movie? (laughs) What was your favourite bit? (laughs) Okay, um, why don't you uh, sign us out and tell us what movie we're doing next month? Yes. I would be happy to. It has been no picnic trying to find time to record this episode. So I'm glad that we were able to bring it to all of our listeners. And if you've lasted this long, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for our guests on this episode. Luke, who were they? Helen Goltz, who wrote No Picnic Hanging Rock, and Karen Robson, who played Irma. They were great interviews as well. Both beautiful, lovely. Loved them. Love them. We'll probably have a picnic with them later on. So next month, we are going to be looking at uh, one of our favourite more recent films. It's Lisa Cholodenko's The Kids Are Alright. So we hope you join us for that episode. Thank you for joining us for this one. Thank you so much. The body of Mrs. Arthur Appleyard, principal of Appleyard College, was found at the base of Hanging Rock on Friday the 27th of March, 1900. Although the exact circumstances of her death are not known... It is believed she fell while attempting to climb the rock. The search for the missing schoolgirls and their governess continued spasmodically for the next few years without success. To this day, their disappearance remains a mystery. <laughs>